It's Monday the 12th of October 2020. My name's Alex Elliott and you're listening to The Week in Iceland, the programme that asks what's been happening in Iceland this week, why it happened and why we should care. Now, I'm joined this week by Randy Stebbins, the director of the University of Iceland Centre for Writing and a founding member of Ospresan. Randy is also one of the researchers involved in a project on violence against immigrant women. Welcome to you. Thank you, Alex. Thanks for inviting me. Very welcome. Uh, unfortunately, this week has, much like every week this year, um, been dominated by, by the coronavirus. The harsher rules for the capital region started last Wednesday, so it is still too early to say whether they are working or not. For now, the numbers do continue to rise uh, to levels unfortunately not seen since early April. Despite this, there are fewer people in hospital now than there were back then. A caravan in South Iceland completely burnt out on Friday evening and South Iceland police say they did not receive the message about the blaze that would probably not have made the news until the body of a man was found inside the burnt out vehicle. Debate has raged in Iceland since the justice minister named the possibility of housing asylum seekers together. Critics were quick to dub them deportation camps, while the minister herself says it is important to have a conversation and that most other countries in Europe have some sort of centres in operation. The government supported top-up loans for first-time homebuyers come into play at the start of next month, uh, but the number of eligible properties appears to be tiny, especially in the capital region. And the family of Jón Thrustur Jónsson, who disappeared in Dublin last February, are considering legal action after an Irish newspaper last weekend claimed he was murdered by another Icelander over illegal gambling debts. The family say the claims come as a complete shock. So, where would you like to begin? Oh my gosh, where do we start on that list? Um, I guess we could get COVID out of the way. Uh, if only we could. Yeah, if only we could magically wave a wand and end up COVID-free. Um, I, I think the fact that we don't know if the new restrictions are working is just an artifact of the fact that the disease moves quickly and we just need to wait. Um, and the changes are at least through the 19th of October. Mm -hmm. So it will be interesting to see at that point what the numbers are and whether or not there will be any substantive changes. Um, you asked why things happen. I'm like, wow, I have no idea why things happen. If I were to forecast, I don't think there'll be any big changes in the restrictions on the 19th, unless it would be to tighten them even further the way it's been developing, though the numbers for today are not out, uh, I think. Part of the numbers are out. I'm just going to refresh the page again. Carry on. Um, I think the good news is there are fewer people in the hospital. There are fewer people in intensive care. Um, and there are fewer people who maybe need the help of a respirator than in the last big wave in spring. Uh, I think, okay, from like a totally dorky point of view, it's fascinating to watch a virus mutate simultaneously as watching humanity try to alter their behaviors in order to keep up with it. And if it weren't deadly and horrible and affecting everybody and shutting down lives and putting people in the hospital, 
from a purely like, wow, this is cool perspective, it would be kind of fun just to watch the back and forth between how rapidly these organisms change and how maybe kind of not rapidly human society changes in response to it. Mm. Well, I mean, yes and no, but we have seen some rapid change this year in, in human society as well, like unprecedented. And part of the trauma of it has been counterbalanced by some of the good things. I think some of the changes we've seen have been quite positive, people standing together more. I'm, I feel maybe that's not quite so true now as it was in the mm. spring, though. I think it's a big change now. Like in the spring, there was definitely this feeling in Iceland um, and maybe other places as well of like, oh, we are standing together. And now the rhetoric, not from the COVID team, that hasn't changed as much, but in society as well. You know, you see people breaking quarantine, you see the restrictions on the capital region, but then people go outside of the capital region in order to get haircuts. You know, so there isn't still that feeling. And I agree, we have responded rapidly as a society in general. I think I'm just contrasting like your life cycle of a general virus <laughs> versus your life cycle of a human being. Um, and it is this interplay of back and forth and how these two groups of organisms are impacting each other and interacting with each other. And again, if, it weren't, if there weren't so much on the line, it would be really fascinating to watch. But there is just so much on the line for people. Yeah. I mean, that's a really, I hadn't thought of it that way, actually. But yeah, I mean, people, we've got intelligence and we've got emotions. Um, but we also have egos and ulterior motives, whereas the virus has none of those things. It just yeah, exists to one job, exactly. Mm. Uh, now, the numbers are looking cautiously optimistic. Good. Um, only 50 new cases yesterday, which was 60 the day before, 80 the day before that, close to 100 at the end of last week. And the curve, the the active cases per 100,000 in the last 14 days has tailed off for the first day, for the first day since um, the early September. No, that's great. Um, that is good. Yeah, that is good. And I think especially at a time like this, like holding on to any sort of good news is really important. And I think it's interesting what you said that we have our intelligence. Like I have never before seen so much scientific work pumped out in such a short amount of time on an issue. Um, and that is also something that like really gives me personally hope and makes me think well, there are so many really smart people working on this issue and the amount of knowledge we have now versus not even a year ago is staggering. It's just staggering. Uh, what's been done and how quickly it's been shared and how barriers to sharing knowledge have broken down a lot. Mm -hmm. And I'm not talking just across countries or across scientific fields, but also between like um, the sciences that are working on this and your general population. You know, I think that is something that is a societal change that me personally gives me quite a bit of hope and makes me feel a little warm inside, you know, when things are rather difficult. I mean, we look back to March, February, March, April time, and 
we were being told to to not stay within two meters of someone else for more than 15 minutes, um, but to avoid at all all costs touching things in the supermarket, for example. Mm -hmm. That is just one example. I mean, it's completely reversed since then, and uh, Mm -hmm. as the knowledge develops. Yeah, and even the early stuff about uh, COVID have a differential effect on different blood types. Like when it first came out, I think a lot of people were skeptical because it just seems... Well, it's not something that's in the common sort of discussion about viruses, right? But now more and more research has been done that indicates that, no, there is some something going on there that we just don't understand yet. But um, it's really good knowledge just for people on the ground dealing with that, you know? And maybe, maybe in the future, the knowledge will be like, no, that was great in the moment, but that's not how it actually, you know, plays out. But just the fact of the creativity of thinking and the different approaches we can take and all the different fields that are getting in on this and the changes, right? And and though people are resistant to changes and some people take it to mean, oh, then we can't trust anything that comes out. I think mostly most people are like, oh, wow, okay. So our understanding of this virus is changing so rapidly um, that I like it. I think it's like what science should be in action Mm. and there is still a sense of a certain sense of fascination of excitement about living through this even though it's a nightmare and so many people are suffering horribly that it is undeniably interesting oh yeah and we are the we are the descendants of the ones who lived through past pandemics you know, we're in, if you're of European heritage, you're, you're the descendants of the ones who lived through the Black Plague, right? And, um, and to see it play out over generations, what kind of immunity is built up? Is it passed on? Is it going to be something more like the flu? Is it going to be something that like our descendants are less likely or, or to get or not have as bad symptoms because we get to pass on our immunity, so it's not just our knowledge, it's our genetics, it's our, you know, biological reaction. Um, Yeah, I mean, we come from hardy stock, we're the ones who survived Mm. in the past. I was reading an article this morning, actually, about just that, the Black Death, uh, the Black Plague, sorry, yeah, the bubonic plague is is still there today, Mm -hmm. and we're still getting outbreaks here and there, but it's easily curable. And the Spanish flu from 1918 Mm, is still going around every year just as a normal flu. Um, Anyway, Kauri Stefansson, head of Decogenetics, is always uh, ready with his opinions and and well known for being so. Um, He believes it's crazy, or no, undesirable perhaps, that the mask rules are only applicable to the capital and he thinks the whole country should have the same rules. Um, What do you think of that? Does he have a reason for this? Is it a a sort of... um biology-based, or is it more fairness-based? I don't know. I would guess he is a scientist, he is a biologist, and he's cautious about the spread of the virus, uh, openly so. Um, So I would hope, I would guess it's from that angle. Yeah, so I think there are a couple, you know, of points to take. Um, If you're living out in the country and you're maybe going to run into five or six people on any given day. There's some balancing that needs to happen, right? But as a fairness, right? So my background is in law. And so like fairness, as a fairness rule, 
do you want different rules for people in the capital than in the countryside, especially in a place like Iceland, where there's this feeling of social cohesion mm -hmm. and then we're all in it together. And now saying, okay, you in the capital, you can't leave. You're, you know, you're in this sort of bubble, locked bubble. Um, I think, I think it's a balance, you know, it's a balance and, um, and I don't envy those who have to balance this for anybody else but themselves. Like, if I go out, I'm going to wear a mask. I don't care where. But that's my personal choice, and I only make that decision for me and my child. Um, I, I really don't envy people who have to make the decision for everybody. Mm. I suppose there's also the economic side to mm. come into that as well. If you did, for example, have a region that had almost no cases, uh, it's economically advantageous for them to carry on as normal. Um, but of course that puts them at greater risk for when someone does come in and, and start spreading it around, which is kind of inevitable too, isn't it? Yeah, I think that's true. And I'm just thinking that like this model of cutting regions apart is something that they use in Iceland around um, sheep raising, you know? And so if you are in a Oh my gosh, I can't remember the name of the disease in English, but if you are in a region that has never had this wasting disease... Scrapey? Yes, thank you. Um, then you are not allowed to get even hay from a region that has had this scrapey uh, come up and, and because they don't want this cross-contamination. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm not saying that that's what they're using, but there is sort of this precedent for carving out regions around these types of communicable diseases in the veterinarian field, you know, which I find, I find interesting. We're not sheep. I know we're not sheep, but it's an Some would say right <laughs> I, I grew up on a farm. I know the sheep. There are some overlap, but we're not. We're not sheep. <laughs> okay, so um, in closing on COVID news, um, reason for cautious optimism over the weekend. Um, obviously, still a long way to go. Where would you like to go next? Which story next? Oh, there's such a plethora to choose from. But since we're already talking about like cutting off regions and, and grouping people, maybe the issue with the Minister of Justice um, and, and I'm not exactly sure what she means, to be honest, about like, let's keep them all together. There are enclaves already for asylum seekers and, and refugees, there's certain housing available to them. But um, my feeling is this is a policy reaction. It's not policy yet, I know, but it, you know, if it were to become policy, based on the embarrassment of losing the Egyptian family. Mm. And it, that's never a good reason to make a policy because you and your ministry are embarrassed. Um, it is a little amusing, you know, in a tiny society where it's like, oh, we can find anybody, which of course there are missing people every every year, it seems like, but to lose a whole family who you would otherwise be deporting. Um, but that's my feeling, you know, it's like, oh, that was embarrassing. And so here's my reaction. Um, and frankly, the... <laughs> the line other countries do it 
is always the least convincing argument for me. Other countries do a lot of things that are really just fundamentally bad ideas, you know, and I've never understood. I understand the emotional appeal of such an argument. It's the same as we did when we were children and our children do well, everybody's doing it, right? Mm -hmm. But your job being the minister is to then take this role of being like, well, is that a good argument? especially the minister of judgment justice especially in my opinion someone who's a lawyer like this is not a good argument you know and then i think it undermines everything she has to say um well personally i'm not sure what i would ever take as being a good argument for this because no matter how fancy the cage restricting somebody's right to move about in society is still a cage um and is that really what we want to do? Um, I suppose you could argue that while the case is still fresh and people are still talking about it, that it could be a good time to start looking around Europe and seeing how all of the other countries do it and try, and try to work out a best case example and to acknowledge that the system we have here now isn't perfect yet, if it ever will be. Um, yeah, I mean, perfection is unattainable. Um, I think yes looking around for other case studies is definitely a good idea um but i think there will be a variety out there that she is glossing over i mean from personal knowledge i know of other asylum seekers in other european countries that are facing possible dp uh, excuse me deportation and they are not in some sort of centralized house, that is the nicest word I can use for it, centralized housing situation. Mm -hmm. You know, they are in the community. Uh, they are going about their lives as best they can with this hanging over them, you know. So um, I think an honest look may be useful, but this kind of glossing over like other countries do it without going on to say, you know, so we need to research the best response here, which I have not seen uh, her say, then I have a little patience for that. Mm -hmm. um, it seems unlikely to go beyond an idea um, since the reaction from the left Green Party in particular, which is leading the current government, mm -hmm. uh, was pretty strong against it. Predictably so, right? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if anything's predictable with this coalition that's going on now. You know, I'm happy to see that reaction. I'm happy to see people saying, people in in positions of power saying, no, this is not it. But then think about what that sort of reaction. So, you know, the bias that the first thing you read is 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 the truth, right? So let's say in the immigrant community, which this story got passed around quite a bit, this is the first thing they read. Um, let's, this is hypothetical, um, you know, and then that becomes stuck in their head. Oh, they're going to like herd the, a certain class of immigrants into, you know, a certain place. And the damage is done mm -hmm. when you throw out that kind of statement without thought, uh, or maybe the thought was to do damage. I don't know. And then, yes, I'm very happy the government is saying, oh, no, no, that's not it, you know. But I don't see that being shared as much as her damaging statements, those first ones, you know, and those are the ones that set the tone. Those are the ones that get stuck in people's head. And then you're just 
dealing with a lot of backtracking and trying to undo mm-hmm. something like that. Is there an argument there um, to say that better care could be taken of people in in more centralized setting if there's very vulnerable people who have had their applications rejected who are sitting in rented housing somewhere on a some street if they might be better off taken care of in a bigger place with more experts around or Iceland's a tiny place you know um we can get into the whole housing issue you know maybe that's our next topic if we have time uh, Iceland's a tiny place um the care that they might get you know, in one health center versus another health center versus whatever their needs are. A lot of it is taken care of, I believe, by the Red Cross. Um, they're a centralized organization. They have offices. They they work with municipalities. I don't think it's big enough here that that kind of argument could be really a strong argument. Um, and because of the sort of socialized aspects of healthcare and, and how the Red Cross and social care and stuff like that, uh, to me, Iceland is, in a way, you know, this centralized place coming from a huge society and a place where I've dealt with immigrant issues because that was what I was doing in law. I just think this is, I don't know what, like, I don't want to put thoughts and words in somebody else's mind and mouth, but I think this is a bit of a straw man, you know, mm. to get people riled up or whatever her her ideas were. Okay, uh, we've probably got time for um, one one other topic, I guess. <laughs> um, where would you like to go next? Um. Let me see, we were talking about the whole housing issue. Why don't we just keep going there since it seems like a logical extension of what we talked about? You're good at this. Yeah, carry on. Um, so the housing issue, and I, you brought up like bad rental housing, and of course that harkens back to that horrible fire and the fire as well, right? I don't know if the person was renting the caravan or not or what the situation was exactly, though I did see the death notice uh, in the paper. Um, well, the story there, just briefly, was that the 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 fire was called in. One one two passed the call over to the police, and then the phone rang out. Mm. And they haven't. They're now looking into how that could have happened. Yeah. Um, and then another call came in at eleven something at night, and it was too late by then. Oh, that is horrible. That is horrible. Um, one thing about living in a smile society, though, this one person's life and death, I think people take it seriously. You know, it's like, oh, that's just horrible. Whereas in a larger society, it's like, oh, that's one one more person, you know, which is a little bit callous, but I think it's reality. Mm-hmm. Um, but then that that's sort of the fire that happened earlier this year, you know, in questionable housing. There is a lot of questionable housing in Iceland and um, and it's expensive. <laughs> you know, housing is really, really expensive. Um, so I think definitely the government's impetus but behind like putting out better housing that's more affordable 
is positive, but the outcome, as you spoke of before, seems to be that the developers who got this funding from the government in order to develop, I think it's 60 square meters, relatively small apartments. So they got government support to do this. Uh, and the agreement was they would be offered on the market at uh, no more than, I believe, 45 million kroner. I could be wrong about those numbers. Um, and then the latest research on it showed, I believe there are only two in the capital area that actually fit the price requirement. Um, so, you know, this is just, it's not surprising, but it's so frustrating mm -hmm. because here's a project that's supposed to help people get into home ownership, which is still, you know, one way to pass, probably the most important way to pass on intergenerational wealth is to own property. It is an important part of, um, amassing status and wealth in in a in a place that you can pass on it also means that you're secure uh it means that you don't have to undergo what's the standard here a year-to-year -year rental contract um that can be changed dramatically and then on the flip side the government also as you said also offers support for people to buy these apartments right um and I think all that is indicative of the housing crisis and what's going on. Um, but these companies are taking advantage of it, right? They benefited from the government. They would benefit from the government again by getting individual homeowners in there. But that isn't enough money for them. So they're going to just go and sell it. And 45 million krona for a 60 square meter apartment is really high. And also, I just have this like fundamental issue with the response being, okay, um, you new homeowner that doesn't have whatever wealth amassed needed to get into a larger house, we're just gonna pack you in to these tiny apartments that are just popping up all over. Um, I don't know, there's just something about that that sits a little wrong for me. That, okay, if you're not wealthy enough, whatever that benchmark is, you're only deserving of this tiny little space, you know, in this packed apartment building. Um, it makes me a little sad, you know, and I haven't really teased through why I have these sort of feelings about it, but that that's pretty much the on only option, I think is a pity. And then that people are then abusing that option or companies are abusing that option, though companies are run by human beings. Um, and so even the program itself isn't working, you know, and the government's response, as I understand it, was, well, they, then those companies can pay back the extra support they got from the government. Not, no, we're going to force them to sell it at the price they said they were going to sell it, you know, not, oh, uh, maybe we'll do that and offer other types of solutions as well. Um, you know, so the so the companies pay back whatever money they got from the government, but they've probably done the analysis and decided that economically it's better for them to sell at this higher price and take the risk of paying back whatever they got from the government. You know, this is the type of risk assessment that companies would do. And they would benefit from that money earlier on mm -hmm. while construction's still undergoing yeah. and, then, and then pay it back when they've got the money on. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, I mean, I would like to see the government, and maybe this is in the table, in the works, I don't know. The government say, okay, not only are you gonna pay it back, 
but we're going to consider it a loan and the interest rate during those times was at whatever percent it was. So you need to pay back the money with a loan, you know, with the interest rate. But that depends on the original contract that they brokered and what that is. But that would be kind of a sweet stick it to the development companies, you know, that I think is within the government's power to say, hmm, okay, that was a loan. You took the risk. Pay pay it with interest, you know, as they do with um, tax evasion. Mm-hmm. You don't you don't just pay your taxes, at least in the U.S. You pay interest on it as well, that the government lost out on. Yeah, um, of course, these were set up as part of the um, quality of life contracts last year, and they were introduced into law this spring, I think, or early summer even. Um, so it's all very new, and, and, and houses take a long time to build. So going forward, you know, it, it should improve, hopefully. There should be more eligible properties on the market as they are built. Yeah, I didn't see the actual number besides the two, only two fitting the criteria, so I don't know two out of how many. Um, I, the area that was specifically reported on was ones near the National Broadcasting Company, um, I looked at those, yeah, very expensive, very yeah, small. Very expensive, and if I just drive by there, they look like they're fully inhabited, all of those units, mm. right? Um, so there are quite a few units. I don't know how many buildings they put up there. It seems like quite a lot. It's a, it's a little community, really. That, mm. that That's what they're going for. They've got a cafe and a shop and stuff there now. Um, yeah. Yeah, so of course um, there's going to be, oh, well, they just aren't on the market yet, but I I have a feeling the people who did this report looked at the overall market and the sales prices and, you know, be interesting to look retrospectively for when they did sell, for mm-hmm. the ones that are sold, what did they sell for, um, you know, because then that will just give you so much more data about what's actually going on. And how to fix the system that clearly isn't working just yet. Well, I'm afraid we are out of time. I'm sorry. Um, the Week in Iceland will be back next Monday, the 19th of October, on roof.is forward slash English, Roof English on Facebook, through the Roof app and your favourite podcast platform. Huge thanks to my guest today, Randy Stebbins, and also to Lydia Gretesdottir for taking care of the technical side of things. We finish today with the current single from one of Iceland's biggest musical exports of the moment. It's of Monsters and Men, and the song is called Visitor. Bye for now. Say
But I'm 